does it take to make workshops work? And how can we facilitate collaboration that sticks and leads to results? My name is Miriam Hatness, and with the Workshops Work podcast, I'm on the mission to find the magic ingredients that make workshops work. Today with me on the show is Sir Brown, and we speak about adventure education and adventurous facilitation. And I learned a lot of what adventurous is and is not. And I guess you will too. So stay tuned. And by the way, if you don't have pen and paper at hand to take your own notes, scroll down to the show notes to download my free one-page summary. And now, enjoy. Hello, Phil. Welcome to the show. Hey, Miriam. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. We are already geeking out on podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> so no. Now it's time to geek out about facilitation. Yes. Put on the new nerd hat. Yes. When did you start calling yourself a facilitator? It's a good question. And I think it's probably when I went to a conference that was using that term, that was saying like it was going to teach facilitation skills. When I started in doing facilitation as I know it now, I was an outdoor educator. That was the title. In fact, my title was actually naturalist because I used to teach environmental education. So mm. it, there was those parts. But I also did team development and and leadership development as part of that job. It was like a jack of all trades doing outdoor education. And I went to a conference and they did a, I think it was called advanced facilitation skills or something like that. Mm. And I was intrigued by the notion of what that meant. And then when I went there, I was reminded of, oh, that's what I was doing. I was sort of facilitating experiences, but I didn't know I was a facilitator. What did you learn at this conference about advanced facilitation skills? What you haven't done before already, but maybe you didn't call it facilitation. I think that if I remember, it was many years ago, but I think that they were really talking about the things that we know today of paying attention, listening, asking good questions, and uh, really focusing on the reflection and guiding people through a learning rather than just being... Someone actually used this phrase recently, so I can't claim it, but I do like it. Rather than being a sage on the stage facilitators are guides on the side. Mm. So that's really like, I think that, that where they were going with this, they were talking about framing of activities. They were talking about reflection and they were talking about deep listening, which at the time I was like, oh, okay, those kind of make sense to me. But I think that there's a point as well when you're facilitating where the word facilitation, it seems like it's an easy thing and you can even describe it and say that these are easy things, but it takes experience and time for you to actually get good at them. Because mm -hmm. there's a lot of like parts that feel difficult when you're in the moment, like actually listening and not talking, actually waiting for and embracing silence, like those things that make you feel awkward, setting a problem or a, a problem solving activity to a group and actually letting them struggle. Like all of those things that I know now, but I think when I look back at my earlier facilitation, I was super awkward and nervous around doing that. And I would interject too quickly and save them. You want to save them from mm. discomfort. And so I would never get to those points and not give time for conversation and cram in too many activities because I felt like I needed someone. Actually, this is something recent that I've, I've still growing through this process of valuing how much my voice is in a space, but in relationship to the price that they paid for me. So like if I'm being brought in to facilitate something, then I used to feel like I need to be giving them stuff all the time. 
Like I need to be saying what they're doing wrong and giving them fixes rather than setting up a scenario, letting them work it through themselves and spending most of my time not speaking. And so I would value my voice at the level of effectiveness of the value of the money. I would feel guilty if I didn't speak. I would leave feeling I hadn't done a good job. Now I think I'm the opposite. So I'm getting there where I'm more comfortable. But I think that is is a term of facilitation in in it that it feels more advanced. Yeah, and I think it's exactly how you describe it. I relate a lot to that. It's this level of maturity to grow into and to embrace to step back, not to feel responsible, to know that they have it within themselves and it's our superpower to bring it forth, to create the space that they feel comfortable enough to seek the answer within themselves and the group instead of the teacher or educator would then just give them the answers. And that's an interesting point. An educator or teachers maybe paid the equivalent for their voice and the knowledge that they're sharing and the facilitators rather to be silent and hold the space. And I think that's where education in a maybe more traditional format, I struggle with because I think that the way they've been taught, it's not the teacher's fault that they feel like they have to give this information all the time. When I work with school-based groups, if I'm having a working with some kids and there's a teacher present, I have to spend some very specific direct time with that teacher, giving the preparation for what's going to come in the day so that they don't do that jumping in, saving the group mindset, Mm -hmm. because there's a maternal and paternal instinct to save. And I think that sometimes as an educator, they're taught to give information and they can't really stand sometimes seeing a group of students struggle through a process and feel like they want to interject, they'll constantly look at me and like give me those deaf stares of like, are you going to do something right now? Like they're arguing and seeing that as being a bad thing and me being like, ooh, this gives me something to talk about. Like I kind of, I'm not a fan when I'm working with with participants, adults or kids or any age or whatever they're doing and they're really succeeding at a task. For me, I'm like, I want them to have a moment of some conflict, not fisticuffs, but like some form of like this, yeah, challenge and disagreement that makes that gives me something to then be able to digest and talk about and open up and allow them to be aware of so that they could see improvement. Because if their improvement is, or their, their reflection is we're awesome, that doesn't really give me much to talk about other than, okay, I'm going to maybe change it and I might have to adapt an activity or it gives me some clues. It gives me something, but I don't want them to always be purely successful. And sometimes I see people jump in, leaders of a group, even I've worked with faculty groups at school and the principal has done this where they've jumped in. And I think there's a little bit of embarrassment on their end. They don't want to feel like their staff, their team Mm, have dysfunction. So they want to jump in and fix it. But in doing so, if they don't present the opportunity for growth. Exactly. And I think there's so many things to unpack and from what you just said. I think one component is also the emotional component of learning. So if we struggle a bit and then we have this kind of dopamine rush because we finally found the answer, this is what connects the learning to an emotion and hence makes the learning sustainable. So I won't forget. If we are just presented with an answer, 
we tend to forget that all the time. But if we have struggled in order to get there, that's how the brain and the entire body remembers. And the second thought I had while you were speaking is actually a paradox from what you explained is the educator makes it easy for the students to access the knowledge. And on the opposite, the facilitator makes it complicated to get to the knowledge, but the facilitator is called facilitator, the person who makes it easy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, there, absolutely. I think that's true. I think sometimes there is, I myself have some personal issues with the term facilitator anyway, only because I, I struggle with the fact that not many people know what we do. And mm -hmm. so I think that that from a marketing perspective or the elevator speech of your job, I don't think it really makes sense to people because if I, someone said, what do you do? And I said, facilitator, they wouldn't know what that meant. So I think there's a barrier, but I think you're absolutely right as well, because a part of our job is to create a challenge. It's not to make the challenge easy. It's maybe to make the learning or the process by which you're learning easy. So we do create the reflective questions, the prompts. We don't let them struggle and then be like, okay, you struggled moving on. Like we want to yeah, goodbye, have fun. What we do is we create a challenging experience that makes the learn and then facilitate the ease of how do we gain the information from that experience and translate that into learning for the future. Yes. And your specialization is in adventure education, so learning through adventure. So I would be very curious. So someone in the audience might be new to the to the term. So what is it? And what is the adventure part? Because what I hear now from what you just said in the context of our conversation is that the adventure part just add the cherry on the on the cake of this experiential learning and connecting it to emotions and the happy challenge. Oh, absolutely. So I want to first debunk or at least get rid of some myths or some assumptions that might be made when you hear adventure learning because or adventure education, because we run up against this quite often. It's not skydiving, kayaking, white water rafting. Those could be, they could be, but that's not all of it. And I think sometimes when you hear the word adventure, you may assume, and that's completely fine to assume that 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 might be where we go with that. For us, adventure is outside of normal, a novel environment that has some quality of risk. Now, that may be physical, but more than likely, it's going to be emotional or social risk. And I, and I include the social risk component because it's sometimes putting yourself into vulnerable positions in front of your peers. And that could be a social risk. You may not want to take a risk in front of peers that you would do outside on your own. So it's it's very team focused. In our specific industry and in the work that I do, the component of adventure is a ropes course. So if you're familiar with seeing like ropes in the air hanging and then cables and you're wearing a harness and stuff, we call those challenge courses in my specific field. And the good piece in that, or the clarifying piece is we call it a challenge course and not a success course. So there are places you can go where you can do aerial adventure parks. Mm -hmm. And that might be like a zip tour or something that you are really, they make the experience super accessible for you and very easy. And so you might sit into it and there are some challenge, there's some growth there, of course, getting up in the air and those components. For us, we use the same kind of concept, but we make it much more of a challenge. So The aim isn't for you to get to the top of something. The aim isn't get to get from A to B on a course. 
the aim really is to see how much you're willing to challenge yourself. And so we have the notion of challenge by choice. And it doesn't mean you choose to not participate, but it does mean you can choose your own level of challenge. And that might be you put a harness on and you're done. It might be you belay, which means being responsible for people on the ground. You might be put in a position where we do a lot of elements where someone's in the air and they have to get from A to B on an obstacle. And the only way to get there is if people on the ground pull ropes and manipulate platforms to make that possible. So there's some team components there as well. I would say that part of my job is about 50%. And we only see those things as additions to being in person, in an office, in a classroom, doing activities that other people in this might be familiar with and having deep conversations. The challenge course is a tool, but it's a next step up tool. So as you described, it elevates adventurous experience. It elevates the novel. It elevates the challenge and it elevates the emotional response. So what I'm able to get out of doing something in the classroom or in a spot office space where I'm doing some conversation things that might be risky and new still too is that I ramp that up. And if I feel the group is ready for that next level, I may take them to those experiences. And that's sometimes a challenge that I see in our industry. Some people see those climbing aspects and see those as the things that we have to get to or I want to get to because they're more adventurous in visual, right? Like, like, oh, it's so exciting. But for me, I look at a group and where they're at and figure out what might be ready for them. And I sometimes don't touch any of that stuff based on Mm. whether they're not there yet. And so it's all about using it as a tool in a tool bag. Like if I had a bag of props, I'm not going to use the thing that's riskier if I'm not, if then the group isn't ready. And if they're ready, then I can go up to that next elevated step. And so that's where the adventure portion really comes into the education. Fascinating. So many questions coming up. (laughs) And the first one that I would like to tackle is, or the association that I have is the one of comfort zone. And what I hear is for some, it can be very tempting. Oh, we're doing this adventure education and growing through the challenge of climbing up. So it's a process, yes. And for some, it might be a very easy challenge. At the same time, the same individual might not feel comfortable or safe to share something personal in a circle of colleagues. So how do you then adjust to a group where for some, this kind of physical adventurous component is their comfort zone and can then become an excuse? Oh, I'm growing because I'm exposing myself to this novel way of team building, but then they would never dare to share anything personal in a circle. That's where I think that what I really love about the work that I do is a perfect combination between all of those layers. And so there is an activity we call challenge zones, and it relates to the comfort zone. The way I can try to have people visualize it is like a bullseye drawing. And so in the center of that bullseye is its comfort zone. The next barrier is challenge zone or a growth zone. And the next is the panic zone. Mm-hmm. That may be familiar to people. We do an activity where we'll go through scenarios and ask you to place yourself where you would feel in that range. And so that can be a good opportunity just to talk about where people are at in terms of, I'll often ask the question of speaking in public or conflict between colleagues, or you want to have those conversations. 
And then what I like about the stuff that we do on our challenge course is it's because it's not the aim is to see how physical you are and how well you can climb. It's That's not the aim. It's also about the stuff that happens on the ground. So we create a lot of ground participation that involves different levels of responsibility. So if someone was very confident at climbing, then I will try to teach them the skill of responsibility on the ground that would require them to now belay for other people. So I take some of that piece away from me and give it to them. So now they're responsible for their peers. I've had some really incredible moments where a leader in a group, quote unquote leader, has been really vocal about wanting to climb really fast. But when I've given them responsibility for the safety of their staff, they don't show it. So that brings up a lot of good conversation. And so everything that we do then relates to reflective conversation Mm -hmm. and having dialogue. And what I also try to do, and the whole point of what we're doing, is to be able to tie in the experience that we had on the course into their real world. Now, if that's not there, then really the the experience is novel and and pointless, realistically. If their goal is trust is an issue in their org, Mm -hmm. then I want to be able to create an experience where we're going to test that on the course and then have the reflection and the conversation on the ground because of that. And there is a reflective practice of the experiential learning cycle, maybe people are familiar with, but the idea is that you have an experience, you reflect on the experience. You have a a conversation about what that action might look like in the future, and then you try it in the future. There's a cycle. I use a method of asking questions that I think really flows in that cycle really well, and I I found it easy to teach people, and it's using what questions. So the first question is what, and it's what happened. So I just ask them to explain the experience. What did we just do? What did you do? What was your roles? Like rehash those kind of conversations, talk about it. And then the next is, So what? So what does this mean for this group right now? Does this bring up any contextual clues or issues that we need to draw back into our real world? Do you see things that happened today that might have existed in your office? And then the next is now what? From this piece that we've learned and this experience and how we've tied it to our real world, what do we learn about what we can take into our office to make sure this doesn't happen again? And what I also like about the experience of being on a course as, as you described, there's this emotional tying in, the dopamine feelings that you have. The serotonin might also happen through the team experience. And they have this shared experience that then they can anchor them to a moment in time that can be used as a reflective process in the future. So we're working with a group of students currently who have some conflict issues. And we are able to talk about our experience on the course and say, you remember when we did that? And we were at our extreme of an emotional response where you were at the peak of fear, and yet you had a moment where the group rallies around you. How did that feel for you? And then as an observer, why did you decide to step in and support them in that moment? And yet here and now in this thing where the risk isn't as great from a physical, but the person still has the same feelings, why are we not able to commit that same level of empathy? So we were able to tie in extreme experiences but anchor them to real experiences they have on a regular basis. And that's where I get really excited about it. We just create an elevated emotional response to a reality that they have on an everyday. Fascinating.
As a facilitator, do you ever find yourself stuck in a rut using the same activities over and over again? Or do you find yourself without a plan B, even though we know that things never go according to plan? That's why we made facilitator cards. I'm Meg Bolger. I'm a professional facilitation geek and the CEO of facilitator cards. Facilitator cards are the helpful nudge you need to get more creative in your workshops. They're a pocket-sized tool that you can use offline to create agendas and backup plans for your virtual and in-person facilitations. And for Workshops Work listeners, you can get a free set of wet erase markers to use with your facilitator cards by using the code WORKSHOPSWORK at facilitator.cards. That's facilitator.cards and enter WORKSHOPSWORK at checkout. And the term ground rules just got a totally new connotation in my mind. And what I what I would be curious about, because I can imagine that the two different experiences can positively impact each other. And I wonder whether there's a natural sequence. You can first create kind of trust through connecting on the ground in a circle, through talking, through communication, or even non-verbally, that will then help you to really trust the ground while you're in the air. If you haven't connected beforehand, there might be more fear. On the other hand, it can also, and maybe it's a personality thing, that if I have experienced this literal physical adventure in the woods, then I feel the connection and I trust them and I can open up on the ground verbally, emotionally. Yeah, I think sometimes there are moments where people will go through such extreme emotional responses to being at physical risk or the perception of physical risk that then they feel much more vulnerable and able to be vulnerable because mm-hmm. they can tie it to an experience that has justifiable vulnerability. So sometimes I think that speaking about our emotions in public to someone can feel like there is a the risk analysis for you in your brain is like, well, it's hard to justify why I should do this or why I should feel this way. Whereas in your, when you're scared in the air and you can say, well, I'm scared about falling, you can say that's the reason why you're able to be scared in front of a group. But once you've created the opportunity to be vulnerable and you've demonstrated it, it sort of opens up the door to be like, okay, they didn't attack me in the way that I thought they would when I was emotional. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can try it on the ground and see how it feels. Like you've created an experience where you've practiced. That's the other piece that I think is is, is crucial to facilitation is the opportunity to practice social elements of our being a human that we don't get to practice. I think it's so strange that we really get focused on our tactile skills of practice. Like if I'm trying to ride a bike, it's a known entity that I'm going to fall over. It's a known entity that I have to keep getting back up. But when it comes to having conversations that might be tough or a deeper conversation about our emotions, we choose not to do it. We choose not to practice until we're much later on in our lives. And then we try it with this high level of fear that an outcome is going to happen that isn't actually going to happen sometimes. And then I think sometimes we were like, why did we not do this earlier? This isn't as scary as I thought it would be, but we don't practice. And that's what we get to have those experiences do in facilitating. We actually facilitate social and emotional experiences Mm. that we actually practice. There isn't as much risk because it's tied to an event that you're doing or something, some experience you're doing. But that will actually pay off for you to practice in the future. And I think that that, for me, is gets me excited because we're actually teaching skills that are uh, far more useful, in my perspective, than trigonometry or something in math or whatever. Absolutely. And we can just create different contexts 
that are playful and still teach very serious skills. Yes. And I think that your use of that word is very poignant for me as well in terms of play. Partly, I, I'm a big component. I've got a little thing behind me. Some people can see if they see, but uh, play like, but play is a huge part of the work that I do. If I if I had to explain truly what I do, if I, people are struggling to understand, I say I play for a living and I help people learn because of it. I create more playful experiences that there's so many benefits to play as a, as a, as a mindset anyway, but especially for adults where the notion is that play is a childish pursuit. I like to reframe it and say, actually, it's childlike, not childish. Mm. And so we should try to do that more often. But sometimes when we have those moments where it's we're centered around some joy, some fun, and play doesn't always have to be like the most fun in the world. I've played a lot of things that have frustrated me, right? Like a board game that you lose at, right? Like there are, there are pure examples of where I'm playing where something doesn't go well. And I think that those things are so important for us to learn from though. And that's the other piece where it comes to the challenge and where I say that the aim isn't always to get to the top. Struggle is real. Struggle is a thing that we should all at some point experience. And so my aim isn't always to have people always do well. And we talked about that with, with activities as well. Like I'm not setting up a problem-solving activity necessarily for you to succeed at that task. And it's not to be cruel. I'm not setting you up to be like, ha, ah, see, as a trick. There is a way to succeed, but I don't want it to be easy. I create boundaries and framing in some of the facilitation of the activities that make things harder because someone will say, well, well, why can't I just do this? Well, if you do that, that would make it easy. And that's not what I'm trying to do. Yeah. It reminds me of an interview I had with uh, Colleen Panier. She's a, a video game designer and facilitator. Mm -hmm. And she brought up the example of playing golf. Well, you could pick up the ball and walk it to the hole, but that's not the point, right? The point is to have this super long stick and use this to place the ball. And I wonder what is the perfect amount of challenge or where would you see as an instructor, facilitator, educator, trainer, experience designer to step in? Because I think I can imagine that in the audience, many are familiar with maybe finding the balance of emotional and mental challenge. But when the physical component comes in, where some participants might be scared of height or scared of the woods in general or other components. So how do you find the balance of, okay, this is enough challenge and this is too much? And what is the risk of allowing someone, giving someone permission not to do it or to pushing them a little bit too far? Yeah, I think that there's, a, there's so much there. I think that that's a large part of, we talked about advanced facilitation skills. I think that from a perspective of adventure education, I think it's a Spider-Man reference, but with great power comes great responsibility. Mm -hmm. And we as adventure educators have almost to a degree, a ramped up level of responsibility because the outcomes that happen if we fail can be quite dramatically detrimental to the experience of the person working. And I would guarantee that When people heard ropes courses, listen to this podcast, they will either have one of three responses. One, they'll never have done it. Maybe it's intrigue. One, they've done it and loved it. Or one, they hated it and they'll never do it again. And more than likely, if you've hated it and never done it again, it's not necessarily because of what the, the setup of the experience might be, but it's because it was very poorly facilitated. Because you were example. not. Yeah. So you weren't given the opportunity to 
say no. You weren't given the opportunity for choosing your level of challenge. You were a part of a group who did this thing. Everyone put harnesses on, everyone put a helmet on, everyone climbed. And there was never the pretense or the awareness that you had choice in that moment. And I've been in this situation similar to those where I've just followed the crowd. It's almost like getting in line for an amusement park ride. And then at the last minute, feeling you want to like leave, but there's social pressure and no one really said it was okay for you to say no. And you sit on it anyway. And then all you have in your head is how no, I'm never doing this again. And that for me is a really big problem for our industry as large. I think that people get put off when they hear adventure because they worry about the opt-in option. And so so for me, Mm -hmm. what we tend to do is there's no promise up front about what we're going to be doing. Like I don't say when people sign up that we're going to be climbing. I don't mention that. Once again, it's a tool in a myriad amount of tools that I could utilize. And what is helpful for us on our facility is our course is separated from our main area. So in order to go there, you actually have to physically go there. It's not like you would do activities underneath all of the stuff in the above you. And I think that's a problem too for a lot of people. If you are doing your ground programming, but there's constant visual distraction of all the other things that they possibly could or couldn't do, they cannot focus because they're nervous or whatever. Mm. The other piece is I spend a huge amount of time, probably in a day program, three hours or so. So like I say, an eight hour program, that's a good amount of time just on connection-based activities and what I call reading the group. And so that is doing activities, creating experiences on the ground that might be semi-challenging. They might try physical things. I might do a balance-based activity, and that might also give me some ideas. If I know that I'm maybe going to have some climbing, I put the harnesses on the participants early, but separate the climbing from the harnesses. Mm. Sometimes I think that there's this, you can imagine if you're a participant who's never done this before, as soon as the instructor starts pulling out hardware, it becomes real. So if I can separate the reality of the climbing from just the gear, so I'll have everyone wear them because I'll say, we may in, in the future be put doing something. I just want us to get used to putting them on and have see how it feels like. There's no obligation to climb, but we're going to be doing activities wearing them. And what that allows me to also do is some activities that utilize some of the gear I may use, like a carabiner or rope or some of the other things they may see. I'll do activities using them. All of this is designed to try to get that um, normality around that more expected. There's an expected normal. And so that they know that when they get out onto the course, there's not this like ramp up of skill. I have to now learn this, 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 this. But the other key piece is, as I'm referenced, is this notion of challenge by choice. It, we, we're very, very clear on creating opportunities for opting out, but we'll have done activities on the ground that talk about advocating for your voice, empowering yourselves and making decisions prior to any of that stuff. So we've created the idea that that is a norm. We don't want to set it up that the first time they have to opt out of something would be when it comes to a thing that's more greater risk Mm -hmm. and can be more emotionally taxing. We do this. It's a very light paired activity, but it's um, handshakes or some high fives. It's a little goofy and silly in, in its nature, but 
It might be creating a paired handshake with a partner. So you're going to create a random handshake, or it might be that I tell you one and you do it. So there's a, a handshake called the wild turkey, where when people spread their thumbs and figs out wide, the other partner does a ball of the fist and thumb outstretched. And when they meet, they makes a turkey and they may gobble like a turkey. So like a turkey. <laughs> so we might do that, but then in a pair, they find a partner, perform that handshake, and then I give them a question prompt. So it might be, what's the most adventurous experience you've ever had? And how would you define it? But then I'll ask the group, okay, now let's get back into this group. Would any pair be willing to step into the center and perform their wild turkey handshake to the group? And most of the time, no one will volunteer, especially if it's the first one, because that's a very emotionally vulnerable place to be. So the next question I ask is, this is a great reality of our experiences of advocating and in feeling empowered. So what for you made you hesitate to volunteer? Whatever that reason is, it's valid because it happened. Mm -hmm. So what is it? And so we discuss it and we have a conversation and we talk about other components where they may have felt that way. Like, have you ever felt other moments where you felt embarrassed to step in front of your peers because X, Y, and Z, or I didn't want to look silly, or I didn't want to advocate for someone else. Cause I, if I put my hand up, that means my partner has to go. Have you ever told someone else to do something? So there's lots of those experiences. And then the next layer of question is what would you need from the group to feel like you could take that risk? Like what experience would facilitate the opportunity for you to be more risky in your mm. everyday life. And so now we've created that just on the ground. So when we go up to the course and I'm putting people into harnesses and climbing, I'll say, you remember we talked about our ability to empower ourselves to make decisions. Everyone at this stage knows that they feel comfortable about where their own decision is and whether they're not going to climb or they're going to climb. But there's another layer to it as well. I always ask the question before they leave the ground is what do you need from us? Because I think that sometimes people, they'll say like, are you ready to climb? But they won't say what do they need from us. So as an example, if you climb and you don't like everyone watching you, that's a very good thing for us to know before you climb. If you don't like us to cheer you on and you don't like to be the center of attention, that's a really awesome thing for us to know before you climb. Because if we don't know that someone will go up, they'll get everyone going, Woo, you can do it they then have the peer pressure, that social pressure to succeed. And if they wanted to come down, they're now probably not going to do it. They're probably going to push themselves further than they are comfortable, at which point they get close to panic, at which point they get close to saying they don't want to do it again. So there's so many layers to be able to create an environment for people to take risks that I think is such an essential that I think gets lost. And my job as a full-time is training people how to create environments like the ones I'm describing. And so I'm teaching educators how to create adventurous programming. And But there's so many layers to that. It's not just build a course. It's not just take your kids rock climbing. It's about like all of the social components and the emotional components, which are constantly missed, which I think lets us down as an industry. Thank you. Yeah, so it kind of rambled there and ranted. But <laughs> yes, thank you. And I find it beautiful how through the process that you just took us through, you also empower the individual to own their decision and to articulate it. Because I think part of all the other thing and the group thing, the personal decision, what do I want? How do I articulate it? And how do I take ownership of my decision? It's a very difficult one. Very difficult. And I've got a perfect story 
if you don't mind, if I can indulge you, because I use this a lot when I'm training other people. Thank you for staying tuned and listening to the show. I appreciate your attention as I know how busy you are. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and engage by sharing your comments and thoughts and visit workshops.work to download the one-page summary. I'm looking forward to seeing you back at the next episode and I wish you a fruitful day.